This may sound strange, but to crime scene investigators, there's something peaceful about working with the dead. No matter how a victim's life ended, they all have a story to tell if somebody's willing to listen. For more than 30 years, Howard Ryan has been that guy, most of that time as a state police crime scene investigator. Today, he is a crime scene reconstruction consultant, an expert witness, and he teaches state-of-the-art forensic techniques to law enforcement agencies worldwide. This podcast series will clear the air on what really happens in the world of forensic investigations. It's not like what you see on TV. So hold on tight as we take you on a walkthrough of some gruesome crime scenes and controversial cases, many of which are too brutal for most people to imagine, and sometimes even for the experts. Join Howard Ryan and his fellow crime scene experts from around the world for a first-hand, no-nonsense, ringside seat as they take you under the yellow tape. Hey, welcome back to Under the Yellow Tape. I'm your host, Howie Ryan. I, uh, I'm excited about this uh, next set of episodes that we're going to do. We're going to do three, one after the other. And in each one, we are going to feature a controversial case. We're going to use those cases, however, to talk about specifically uh, media coverage of these cases. These are three cases you all probably have heard of. Today, we're going to talk about the shooting death of Ahmaud Arbery. The second one we're going to talk about is the in-custody death of George Floyd. And the third one is the police-involved shooting of Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta, Georgia. We're going to break them down from a crime scene investigation standpoint and a criminal investigation standpoint, but we're also going to talk about specifically media coverage of the events, the first 24 to 48 hour news cycles and what you've been told. And then we're going to compare what you've been told to the actual facts. The reason why we're going to do this is pretty obvious. In light of recent events, there has been a tremendous amount of civil unrest. There's been racial tensions. There has been allegations of racism. Uh, and the resulting multi-million or billions of dollars worth of damage throughout this country with this cancel culture, outrage culture, and everything else. And one of the things I want to focus on is how much responsibility does the media really have or what role do they play in some of the some of the aftermath of these incidents. The incidents themselves can trigger an event, but it's very critical that you look at how they're reported. What is actual fact? And how do they say it? Words are important, and how they say it can can be very damaging, or it can be very helpful. Uh, a lot of the research on media uses estimates that Americans spend between 10 and 12 hours per day using some form of media. Think of those hours, 10 or 12 hours. 12 hours. That's half a day of a 24-hour cycle in a day. If you're lucky, you're sleeping 6 to 8 hours. So you start narrowing it down. There's only a few hours of the day potentially, that you're not involved in some sort of media. Whether you're listening to a radio, or you're looking at your phone, or you're watching television, or your computer screen, or, uh, or whatever it may be, you are, we all are, every day, surrounded by an electronic component and electronic voices telling us something 
one way or another. We're looking things up or we're just listening to certain things. Um, the media knows this. They know that you spend this many hours dealing with some sort of form of media and they use it to their advantage. They become more powerful today than they've ever been in our history because there are so many forms of media that they can draw on. And we haven't even talked about social media yet. So they have experts that research this, and, and one of the forms you really look at, or one of the professions that really dives into it, is marketing, advertising. They look at people's patterns of behavior, what they like, what they look for, what they want to buy. And some of the marketing research suggests that people are very quick to look at things and make opinions. So it's very critical for the media to give you that first impression that they want, to, they want you to have. Some of that marketing research suggests that people form a first impression of another person in one-tenth of one second. They also say that it takes approximately 50 milliseconds to form an opinion about a website. The site comes up on your computer screen. Do I stay here and look any further or do I move on? Does it appeal to me or not? And I move. This is a very fast-moving uh, time and a very fast-moving um, society when it comes to tech information technology. They basically, they look at three channels of communication, visual, verbal, and vocal. The media knows all this. So 55% of first impressions are made by what we actually see. This is not learning. This is just first impressions. Some people are visual learners. This is not to be confused with that, which also kind of lends itself to the same, uh, same mindset. But 55%, they say, some of these experts say, of first impressions are made by what we see. So 38% is the, is the way we hear your first words. 7% are the actual words that you say. Those last two really strike me as impactful. 38% is the way we hear what you say, and 7% are the actual words of what you say. So when the media gives a first reporting of an incident, especially if they think it's going to be controversial, it is interesting how they frame it and how they say it. Because how they say it, according to these statistics, may even be more important than what they say. It's how they say it. And if you think about it, this 93% of your opinion has nothing to do with what you actually say. That is very, very interesting. And it's something to consider when you sit down at night and you have a cup of coffee or you crack a beer or a drink and you're watching your news, your news network of choice, which we're also going to talk about, your choice, and what it means. And it's kind of, uh, it's very powerful. There's a, uh, a blog that was written, and I searched a lot, of, a lot of topics on media bias. And it's just, man, the internet is just filled with documents and writings on media bias from everything in the U.S. to the U.K. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting to read. But this uh, blog comes out of Penn State uh, University. And one of the things, uh, the individual's name is Josh, Kess Josh Kessler Blog. It's a very good blog. And uh, I mean, this piece is anyways. One of the things he says in here is, I'm going to read it. News has become less about informing people about facts and more about telling people what their opinions should be. People tune in to the network that matches their already established political ideology, preventing them from seeing the world from more than one viewpoint and making them less perceptive to the viewpoints of others. If people are so stubborn in their beliefs, 
arguments will devolve into pointless shouting matches that only serve to make both sides hate each other more. Unfortunately, this sentiment is provoked by our media, who often insult their counterparts on opposing networks, rather than attempt to intelligently refute their arguments. Man, that is right on the money, I think. I don't know that I don't know too many people, whether you're left or right leaning, would disagree with that. The news is framing your opinions these days. Here's the most interesting thing about that blog piece that was written. It was written in 2013. It's only gotten worse. And today it is it has manifested itself into a debacle, but it's here. So when we look at that as far as the media and how they start to frame our opinions, it's kind of sad, I think. And uh, I think it's I think we're becoming more and more like sheep. We follow. But we're always going to listen to what we want to hear. So the news network that you choose is like positive affirmation. A lot of it today is political, but even with these, these events that I just described, the ones I listed, we watch the network that's going to say what we want to hear about that event or about politics or about whatever it may be. And it's sad because we're not making up our own mind. And kind of, I find something very interesting. In an age where we have more information available to us, the stroke of a keyboard, we do less and less asking of questions or, or challenging a news report. We seem to just believe it. When I talked about either Ahmaud Arbery or George Floyd or Rayshard Brooks cases with people, colleagues that I know in, in the criminal investigation world, they all say the same thing. Well, let's see what the investigation says. But see, that's, that's a response coming from people in this business. And they, they give that response because they know. They don't know what the, the investigation is going to necessarily tell us, how it unfolds. It's going to happen, and we'll learn about it. But they do know enough to say, wait, because they've experienced it. They've all experienced investigations where they started a case the public opinion was one thing, and the end result three months later was something completely different. These are people in the business. Now, the average general person in the public who has a nine-to-five job somewhere or doing whatever they're doing, and this is not their business, this is not their line of work or their profession, they, they tend to get the news snippets and move on. Now, in discussing these three cases with friends and colleagues or friends and, and uh, acquaintances, that are not in this business, I get a totally different uh, response. It's, I hear terms of murder and racism and police brutality and, oh my God, how could they have done this? And what are we doing uh, with our society? Now you're hearing cries to defund police and uh, well, I'd rather have civilians go out and answer some of these these mental health calls. Uh, I read that actually today in, in, the, in the Wall Street Journal, how they, some of these cities want to send uh, mental health professionals out without police. Yeah, that'll go well. That'll go well. I'm sure the people that are listening to this that are in this business are, gonna, are, are laughing and chuckling, saying, until the first one gets killed, and then we're going to have to change that back somehow. But my point is, they listen to this, and they believe it. And they're busy in their lives. They have families, children, and jobs, and social activities. 
and they don't have time to do the deep dive research. Well, I'm a personal believer that the media knows that. So they can frame a story and frame a narrative in the first 24 to 48 hours that becomes believable by the masses very quickly. And that becomes a very dangerous recipe in this world because a lot of times what they're giving out is not necessarily the truth. So I want to dive into a few other aspects here before we get into the Ahmaud Arbery case and a deep dive. And one of them is social media. Social media, man, there's some people out there that have the belief that it may be one of the worst things that has ever happened because it's devolved into something very dangerous. What was probably meant to be a good thing in the beginning um, has really not, not really manifested itself that way as the history has shown. And one of the things that comes from this, you know, you have your bullying, your cyber bullying, you have shaming, you have political arguments, but you have this group consensus thing. And, and people have seem to have this desire to be liked. It's just human nature, I guess, right? We all want to be liked. And I don't think anybody goes through life saying, man, I really want to be hated. So a lot of them just want to be liked. And the way they can, they can look at how much they're liked or how they're perceived is through social media and posts and likes and shares and things of that nature. And uh, part of it is a group consensus. They want this group consensus. So somebody will put out a post about something, whether it's an opinion or whatever it may be, and they look for that group consensus. They look for that dopamine hit, as we call it, right? Dopamine, well, there's an article actually by a Harvard University researcher, Trevor Haynes. And what he says is, when you get a social media notification, your brain sends a chemical messenger called dopamine along a reward pathway, which makes you feel good. Dopamine is associated with a lot of positive things, food, exercise, love, sex, gambling, drugs, and now social media. Think about this and be honest with yourself. How many people have posted something on social media, gone back to it 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, a day later? How many likes did I get? How many views? How many shares? What comments? Do they like me? Do they like what I have to say? Am I getting the proverbial pat on the back? Um, and that is that dopamine hit. Well, we that's that whole sheep herd follow everybody thing. We're kind of looking for affirmation and positive reinforcement in, in things that we believe. Now, there are other people out there that they post all kinds of controversial things, and they're looking for the confrontation. Uh, some studies have shown that people are more likely to post or repost something that evokes anger or fear than anything else. And it's, they call it clickbait. And the media uses clickbait too, because on their websites, um, they want you to search deeper. Clickbait refers to content that has the main purpose is to attract attention and encourage people to click on a particular link or a website. They're driving you further into their website or uh, into a product or whatever it means. So clickbait is, uh, is, is there, and it's designed, most clickbait anyways, is designed to elicit some kind of fear, loathing, or anger, or controversy, or debate. And it's hard to go online without being saturated right now with opinions, political opinions, rhetoric, and a lot of angry hatred kind of bullshit, and it's all out there right now. So when you get to these major cases, 
of something like a shooting death or an in-custody death, the media is going to put their spin right from the beginning on this. And our, our society now has become so outraged. But are they outraged because they have an opinion, an educated opinion? Most of them will say, yes, oh no, yeah, no, I know all about it. And they get angry if you suggest that maybe they don't know the whole story. Or they even get angry if you suggest, maybe wait until you hear the investigation. And I have been at functions where people say, well, yeah, I mean, you got to admit this, or I saw the video, you got to admit that. And I would always ask them, what video? Well, that video that shows this. Okay, that, that three-minute video? So you're going to base every opinion you have on a situation on a three-minute video, and you don't know anything else about any of it. And they kind of look at you almost like some of them will argue with you, and some of them will go, well, no, I don't know that much about it. And we're seeing it more and more in our world. And, you know, since these three incidents took place, folks, look what's going on in this country. As a result, you have cities on fire. You have areas in Seattle that groups have claimed to have seized sovereign land. They wanted to be a new nation or a new city or whatever the hell they wanted to call it up there. Chop or Chaz. I, look, I get you're angry about things. But do you even know the whole story? That's the point of these three episodes that we're going to do. And we're going to talk about the story. Let's tell you a little bit more about him. Let's look at them from the perspective of an investigator. And let's see how some of these other outside influences have affected public opinion. And we'll take them one by one and we'll go through them. We'll talk a little bit more about media hype and we will... We'll talk about society. I mean, society is going to be the ultimate judge. We have juries in this country. How hard is it going to be to pick a jury? There's a book I want to reference, and I, I, I think it's a fantastic read, and I think people should pick it up and, and check it out, regardless of your political beliefs. The name of the book is Fortitude, and it is written by a gentleman by the name of Dan Crenshaw. Dan Crenshaw was a lieutenant commander in the United States Navy SEAL teams. He was a commander of SEAL Team 3, 10 years in the teams, multiple deployments, an injury, catastrophic injury from an explosion. This is a very interesting man, uh, very, very intelligent. And uh, he wrote this book called Fortitude that I think is fantastic. You may have seen him on TV, interviewed from time to time. In his deployment, one of his deployments, he was struck uh, as a victim of an explosion of an IED, and he lost an eye. He is now today a United States congressman from Texas, represents the area in and around Houston. And uh, this book, I think, really jumps right in from the beginning. It gets right to the point. And one of the things that he talks about, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read an excerpt from it because I think it's very important that you hear this and you can, you can make your own decision. And everything, like everything we're going to do on Under the Yellow Tape, this is about just giving you a little bit more information and you form your own opinion. I don't want you to share mine necessarily. I think the media would do everybody a huge favor by just giving them the news and letting them form their own opinion. But one of the things that Crenshaw, Dan Crenshaw says, and uh, I think is really important, especially in an outrage world right now, is, and I'm going to quote, this is a read directly from his book, outrage is weakness. It is the muting of rational thinking and the triumph of emotion. 
despite what you've been hearing and seeing as of late, it is not a virtue. It is not something to be celebrated, nor praised, nor aspired to. It is a deeply human emotion, even understandable at times, but rarely is it productive, virtuous, or useful. It is emotion to overcome, not accept. And overcoming it requires mental strength. He goes on to talk about uh, outrage culture. It is about outrage culture and the newfound tendency to reflexively assume the worst of intentions when reacting to news or commentary or political discourse and default into an emotionally driven hatred of, quote, the other, whoever that may be. It is the petty, weak-minded, and ultimately unproductive response to our neighbors, our fellow citizens, and political opponents that has been normalized and even elevated in our culture. It is about the hypersensitivity that has infected our society, where undesirable language is the equivalent of physical violence, where an old tweet or Facebook post can be grounds for ruination and public shame, and where an absence of reason or fact encourages public indictment, moral outrage, and mob rule. Outrage culture is the weaponization of emotion and the elevation of emotion above reason. It's the new normal, where moral righteousness rises in proportion to your level of outrage. The more outraged one is, the more authentic one is perceived to be. And the more authentic one is, the greater one's moral standing. Reason, rationale, and evidence be damned. Man, when I read that, I highlighted it in the book because I said, this, is, this sums up so much that's going on today. It's just insanity that, that, we, that we are allowing to happen and we are kind of patting each other on, on the back over it. But at the end of the day, we're really getting nothing done. I think Congressman Crenshaw has a very good insight to this. I think he wrote a book that's fantastic and it should be required reading. It's not political at all. He, he is probably one of the more moderate people that I am, uh, they have. He is a Republican, I get it, but uh, he's a very intelligent guy and he's pretty down the middle on a lot of issues and it's probably worth reading. I, and I listen, I went out and bought the book. It's not like I got it given to me and I'm, I don't know the man, although I'd love to meet him one day, uh, but I think the book is fantastic and, and I, I strongly recommend it as a read. So with that, let's get into the case here. The case today we're going to talk about is the shooting death of Ahmaud Arbery. Ahmad Arbery is a 25-year-old man. He is shot and killed on a residential street in Satilla Shores, which is a uh, neighborhood outside Brunswick, Georgia. We want to look at the role of the investigation and the investigators and what went on here and some of their conversations back and forth, some of the discourse and disagreements that went on. This case is interesting, folks. It's interesting because there's some components in here you don't often see. You see district attorneys disagreeing with one another. You see law enforcement agencies disagreeing with the district attorneys, which actually happens quite a bit, but back and forth. But in this case, it's they start a lot of finger pointing before any criminal charges are brought up. And um, it's, it's kind of about objectivity, who's involved, is there politics in play? And the end result right now where we stand as of this date in July, uh, July 11th is the recording date here. We have three individuals charged with murder. And 
we have a case that is going to end up going towards a trial. So I want to focus on how the media frames the initial narrative of this and its subsequent storyline and how they continue to press their opinions by posting statements of their own, of politicians, and the most absurd thing in the world, which I still can't wrap my head around after all these years, is posting the opinions of celebrities. Whether it be Hollywood or athletes, it doesn't really matter. But it kind of is this mob consensus rule. Let me throw some political uh, statements out there. Let me throw some athletes. Because, you know, people listen to athletes. Because let's face it, folks, right? They're super geniuses. They get it. I mean, if they, if they weren't the smartest people in the world, they wouldn't be athletes, right? They wouldn't be doing this. They'd be doing something else. And um, you know, kind of along that line of the, the mob rule or the influence of the masses, there's another book out there. It's a best-selling book called Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion, written by psychologist Robert Cialdini. And I probably pronounced his last name wrong, so I forgive, forgive me if I did. But he writes, quote, whether the question is what to do with an empty popcorn box in a movie theater, how fast to drive on a certain stretch of highway, or how to eat chicken at a dinner party. The actions of those around us will be important in defining the answer. Social proof is a shortcut to decide how we act. He went on in his book, same book, to use an example of advertisers informing us that a product is, quote, the fastest growing or the best selling. Well, they don't have to persuade us that the product's good. They just have to tell us that everybody else likes it and we go out and buy it, right? You see it every day on TV. Well, when we deal with something like the death of Ahmaud Arbery and the media wants to actually print or give airtime to some idiot politician or athlete that wants to chime in on their Twitter account, the sad thing is not that the people do it because they have a right to their belief, their freedom of speech, their freedom of, of expression. But the sad thing is that people actually look at it and go, yeah, yeah because he said it or she said it, yeah, I'm going to go with that. That's the pathetic part of our society right now. That's the sheep mentality, that you're looking at completely uneducated opinions. When I say uneducated, I'm not talking about dumb. I'm just talking about they don't do this for a living, and they're, giving the, they're given the same minimal amount of information that you are, but you want to believe them because they play basketball or football or they're an actor or an actress. And to me, I've never, it's one of the most unbelievably um, kind of like ridiculous things I think I've seen in this country because nobody gives a shit what they say really, um, except that they're, they're a star and, you know, I want to I be like them. We're going to talk a little bit about that too. Now, the media headlines in the Ahmaud Arbery case were plenty. They were from everywhere. The media headlines were from all over, all over the U.S., every outlet that we had here, every newspaper, every television channel here, the U.K., around the world. And as it got more and more intense and, and controversial and violent, these things obviously grew. So I'm going to go through just a few here, and, and we're going to talk about some of the uh, articles that have been written by major news. CNN has covered it extensively and as they do for these things quite quite a bit. And I, I'd like to tap into some of the things that they said. And you know what? Listen, in, for, in all fairness, Fox did the same thing. So it's, it's across the board. And one of the things that was really uh, amazing is some of the headlines. There was a, there was a, 
a, an article written on May 11th of 20 by Simret Akhlilu and Chandelis Duster. I don't know who they are, but they apparently have written for CNN. And in the article they wrote, and I'm going to just give a couple snippets here. One is the shooting death of an unarmed American African-American jogger. The shooting death of an unarmed African-American jogger. I used the term earlier, sloganeering. Think of that word when you read some of these headlines. Think of that word from now on. After you listen to this, after you move on, think about that word sloganeering and opportunism. Okay? Another one here is Arbery, 25, was shot and killed on February 23rd. All of that is perfect. Perfect fact, right? While jogging. Jogging in southern Georgia. So I want to focus on the jogging. In the first line, it was the jogger. And on this line, it's jogging. Third, third snippet of their article, two white men face charges of murder and aggravated assault in the killing of Arbery, comma, a former high school football player. Because you need to know that. You need to know he was a high school football player because it changes everything. Now, you may think I'm being sarcastic. I'm not. They want you to know that. Why? Because they're humanizing him. They're going to humanize Ahmaud Arbery. The media is going to frame Ahmaud Arbery as a victim, a martyr. No, no matter what, they are introducing more racial tension into this than anybody else. Because I'm going to tell you right now, when the investigators get it, and ultimately this case was turned over to the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, who I know many of very well, and these people are consummate professionals. They will get to the bottom of this incident. They will either charge, not charge. And what they do, um, I have a lot of faith in. But the media, I don't have faith in. And they are putting these words out there. The African-American jogger. He is an African-American. He was unarmed at the beginning of this. My question in the first line is the jogger. How do we know that? Well, it turns out that mom said he was jogging. So mommy says he's jogging. So he's a jogger. The video that they play shows him running down a street. The first video shows him running down a street. And maybe he is. Maybe he's out for a jog. I don't really know. But if I am the investigator, this is where I want to keep this in the middle. If I'm the investigator, I want to know how often he jogs. I'm going to look into that. I don't know the answer to it. I'm sure all of the investigators down there, when they first entered into this investigation, they didn't know it either. But does he jog in this neighborhood? Is he over here quite often jogging? Maybe he's out jogging. I don't know, but I want to know that. I want to know it because, specifically because, I want to know why he's in this neighborhood. He does not live here. Why is he over here? Is he visiting somebody? Is he out for a run and passing through the neighborhood, which is perfectly fine if that's the case? But we need to substantiate that. Because the jury pool has been so tainted now by media headlines and the violence that has erupted from all of these things that everybody thinks he's a jogger. And actually, we don't really know. But I want to know. So that's something that's going to be argued and researched and looked into. In the second line, same thing. Arbery 25 was shot and killed on February 23rd. Absolutely factual. Perfect. While jogging. Again, you threw that in there. Here's your sloganeering again. We're going to frame this for you. They're telling you he's a jogger. They want you to believe he's a jogger. I don't know that they've even vetted it because none of them actually really said. We've determined he was a jogger because he's done this, this, and this. None. They just throw it out there. See, they're covered under the freedom of the press, so they can pretty much say all the crazy shit they want, and nobody ever holds them to ta you know, takes them to task on it. 
And if they do, it's for a day and then it just moves on to the next story. Now, third line, two white men face charges of murder. Yes, that's true. And aggravated assault, true. And the killing of Arbery, true. Comma, a former football player. Okay. Some of you are going to, some of you are probably already laughing because some of you listeners know me. Who gives a shit that he's a football player? What role does that have to do with anything in the investigation? And what editor looked at that and went, yeah, that's really important. That's good. No, see, they don't. They look at it and they say, humanize this kid. And if you if you think I'm wrong about that, look at the pictures that you saw day one of Ahmaud Arbery. Look at the pictures of anybody in any controversial killing that you've seen in the past 10, 15 years. It's a childhood picture. It's him playing. It's him at a little elementary school graduation. For Ahmaud Arbery, it's a picture of him in a tuxedo with a bow tie. Don't think that's a mistake, folks. This is what we call confirmation bias. And the media does it very, very well. And I'm going to get to confirmation bias in, in, in a little more depth here and how it affects all of us. They want the end result to be a certain thing, and they're going to lead you there. They're leading you down the path of what you should believe. So I'm going to show you a picture of this very handsome young man with a clean-cut hairdo in a, in a tuxedo with a bow tie, and I'm going to tell you he's a star football player. And you're going to be like, oh, man, that's, God, that's horrible. What happened? So you're starting right there. And confirmation bias is something that they, they do very, very well. It's a term that was coined back in time, in English, uh, a little ways back, psychologist Peter Wasson, W-A-S-O-N. And it's, he says it's a tendency of people to favor information that confirms or strengthens their beliefs or values. It's also very difficult to dislodge it once it's affirmed. Very powerful tool for the media because they can, they can start to spoon feed you that confirmation bias and bring you down a path. And they know it's very hard for you to be convinced otherwise after that point. That's why I said earlier how hard it can be to pick a jury. Um, it's an example of a cognitive bias, and it, uh, it's, 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 in, it's in all of our lives every day. You turn on any news channel, and they're telling you a story, or they're giving you a, uh, a news story, or they're talking, I mean, today it's all about politics, but it's always the same span with a direction. We're going a certain place, they, and that's why I said in the beginning, we all tune into what we want to listen to. So this confirmation bias uh, is, is um, also been termed my side bias. In other words, my side, my opinion. The whole thing is to fit what I believe. And um, it's, it's an effect in information processing. It's, it's something that we see every day, that, and we're also going to talk a little bit more about contextual bias and what that means. And contextual bias is a little different, but it occurs when well-intentioned experts are vulnerable to making erroneous decisions by extraneous influences. Now, that's a definition that was taken out that talks specifically about forensic science in the laboratories, and there's been a lot of talk about contextual bias in the laboratories. But it's the same thing in public. It doesn't have to be a well-intentioned expert. It can be just your average everyday person. You are biased by all the extraneous bullshit information that's around you, that's coming in. A football player. That's extraneous bullshit information. Nobody cares. 
The only thing people should be care about today is what happened. The, the series of events from when we first see Ahmaud Arbery to the unfortunate shooting that causes his death. What happens? All this other stuff, it really doesn't matter. But it does matter for the media, and it does matter in how they are going to continue to spoon-feed you what they want. So let's get into some of the other extraneous nonsense. I said earlier, political statements, people weighing in. Whether we like it or not, ladies and gentlemen, this is an election year. We've all been just inundated with nonsense about the election year, but you got to you got to ask how much is being politicized. How much of it has political implications? Well, you have the mayor of Atlanta, which by the way has nothing to do with Brunswick or Satilla Shores. But she is one of the hopefuls for a vice presidential pick, right? She comes out and she gives a statement right up in the beginning talking about it being a lynching. This is another lynching of an African-American male. These things don't help investigations. This just incites people. And it is a great news clip because the news people are getting a mayor of one of the major cities in the United States giving a racially charged statement. You hear what I said? Racially charged. Almost racist. She has nothing, absolutely nothing, to do with this investigation. But she wants to talk about lynching. Nobody was hung. Nobody's hung here. But lynching is a term, it's what I said earlier, it's sloganeering. We're gonna paint this as a racist event. And I'm gonna be honest with you, maybe it is. But at the point we all watch the news, we don't know that. And they don't know it either. She knows nothing about the investigation, or at least she shouldn't know anything about it. She's not involved in it, but she's going to throw that out there. You have to ask why. Maybe she has personal beliefs, and I'm okay with that. And to be fair to, to uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms, the mayor, well, somebody in the media shoved a microphone in her face, so she's going to say something. She wants to be a vice president. She's going for it. Uh, called opportunism. Sloganeering and opportunism. She's going to throw it out. She wants to make a racial issue out of it. She needs it to be a racial issue because she needs votes if she's the one. She wants to put herself out in front. So we've already taken away the objectivity of an investigation when we have things like that happening. We have big-time political officials. Let's face it, Atlanta's a big city. The mayor of it's a big position. She's talking about lynching. People are going to listen and pay attention, although it has nothing to do with the case, and she may be completely wrong. It doesn't really matter, right? By day three, it's off. She's already got her, her TV time, her press time, and we move on. That's one. We also have Senator Kamala Harris. She's another one. She's not even from Georgia. She says, the video of Ahmaud Arbery sickens me to my core. You know what? It sickens me too. It's a horrible video. Let's be honest. It really is. She wrote on Twitter, exercising while black should not be a death sentence or shouldn't be a death sentence. Okay. Um, we're going back to the jogging thing, right? She believed it. They told her she bought it. He's exercising. The whole world, right? Everybody's thinking, oh, he's a jogger. We haven't really determined whether he was jogging yet or not. We're going to get into that in here in a minute. 
But here's the center. Another one wants to be a vice presidential hopeful talking about jogging while black. That again, sloganeering. We're going to throw it out there. Little catchphrase, right? It's kind of neat. Jogging while black, driving while black, doing this while whatever. It catches people's attention and it incites people. Again, inciting racial tension, which could be by some considered racist, right? I don't know. Make your own mind up on that. But when you listen to these people, you have to shake your head once in a while and say, what are you doing? Why, why, would, you, why would you talk that way? CNN went through a whole series of articles on this, and they just kept c- kind of going on where it was always the young black jogger, the, the standout uh, CNN's article on, on Sunday, May 24th by Ray Sanchez started out the former high school football player with lightning speed, often jogged miles near the southern Georgia enclave where he grew up. How do you know? He didn't tell us where you found that out. Maybe you're just going off what everybody else is saying. He's, he jogs for miles. Again, he calls him the young black jogger, and we go through this over and over and over again. Now, let's get into the video and what the video says. I'm, I'm sorry. Before that, let me go back. Let's talk about celebrities. Same thing. The celebrities are diving into this big time. So there was an open letter that was sent to the current prosecutor, Tom Durden, and District Attorney of Atlantic Judicial Course, and the State Attorney General, Chris Carr. It was an open letter, also addressed to the governor, Brian Kemp. And it was from musicians Jay-Z, Alicia Keys, Meek Mill, I'm assuming that's a music person, and Yo Gotti. And as a, this is one of the things they write in here. As a society, we can no longer pretend that the racial inequities which exist in every facet of our lives, don't invariably lead down the path to poverty, violence, and death. Goes on to say, to even think about breaking this cycle, we need you to protect the process and preserve the fairness of the trial. I love that last line, and I believe in it 100%. I actually believe in everything they say right there. To even think about breaking a cycle, we need you to protect the process and preserve the fairness of the trial. It's a big line. But they're also still talking about the injustice of this whole thing. Now, I respect their uh, their their ability, their right to have an opinion. Um, I respect the fact that they are horrified by the video that they got to see. Um, they go on to bring up issues of conflicts of interest between certain district attorneys down there and and whatnot, and how it's moving around. And they're calling on the governor and the attorney general to get involved, which they did. And the case has been turned over to the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. Now, the part I, I, I have an issue with is they don't know the story. So they're penning letters. And it's actually not a bad letter, but they're penning letters and they don't know the story. So they are complaining about something and they're saying, we want justice done. And I respect that. But they don't know the story either. And then when you get into some of the athletes and they are giving their take on this, one is LeBron James, the NBA star, probably one of the greatest basketball players that ever lived. And um, he writes on a Twitter, this is open source media, his own tweet, quote, we are literally hunted every day, every time we step foot outside the comfort of our homes. Can't even go for a damn jog, man. Are you kidding me? Okay, so... 
There's a ton of people out there in this world that are LeBron James fans that are going to look and go, yeah, what he said. Okay, here's the thing. LeBron James is another guy who has a right to an opinion. Problem is he doesn't know the story. Nobody knows the story yet at that point. It was just starting to come out when all this went, went out. And the outrage just started to take off and snowball. The problem is you're not waiting for the investigation to be done. Actually, the problem is it hadn't even really started because this had changed hands several times, which became an issue. So let's get to it. February 23rd, Ahmad Arbery is shot and killed on a residential street. Okay. He is shot by another man holding a shotgun. And there is a video uh, of most of the event. And most of the event is important, not all of it. So these, what I'd like to do is talk about the shooting investigation. If I was brought in as a consultant and a shooting reconstruction person, which is what I do for a living, I would look at this in a certain way. And I would ask some questions. So I'm not, today I'm not going to give you opinions, conclusions. I'm going to tell you what I would ask. And I would suggest that you may ask yourself the same thing. So he is shot on the street after running from a home. So we have a video that is open source of who we believe to be Ahmad Arbery entering a home. It is a home under construction in Satilla Shores, and he enters and, and then ultimately exits. But, I, but we have to break it down. So they're saying he's a jogger. And the reason that I kind of, I sort of question that is the very first part of the video we see with Ahmad Arbery. He's not jogging. He's not jogging at all. He's walking. He's walking down a street and he comes to the front of this house. He stops in front of the driveway. And again, it's a house under construction. He puts his hands on his hips and he looks up and down the street each way. He turns and he makes entry. He makes entry into this home that we've determined is not his. It's a home under construction. He goes in the garage door, which is open. And people seem to be making a big deal about, well, the house is under construction. It's open. Okay, it's still a house, and it's still not his. So as an investigator, I'm making these notes. He enters a home without permission that does not belong to him. Okay? Goes in the door, comes back out. Very quickly, it seems. He walks around the side of the house, and somewhere he goes back in. We can't see where, but he know, we know he goes back in. Because a short period later, he comes out the front door. He appears in the front doorway. Now, that's not a matter that's in dispute here. We like to break these things down as matters in dispute and matters not in dispute. The fact that he's in the house is apparently not in dispute because his own lawyer pretty much admitted it's him. But they're hanging their hat on, well, he didn't steal anything. He didn't take anything. That may be the case. But the question is, did you go in there without permission? That's... That is going to be the perception of the other people involved in this case, the people that have since been criminally charged. They are going to argue the point that he burglarized a house. Another interesting thing that I find is that there had been numerous 911 calls about people breaking in in this area. And one of the people that had been making calls was the individual who has been charged with shooting him. And that had come either days or a week before. They had seen somebody fitting in his, his description that he confronted at the, in nighttime 
entering this either the same house or another house in the area. I think it was the same house under construction. So you may be saying to yourself, okay, well, he entered a house. Big deal. It's a house under construction. Nobody was there. Well, this is where you get into the rule of law and the minutiae, the finer points of cases like this. And you have to ask certain things. So what I'm going to uh, read a little bit uh, to you is Georgia Code, Title 16, Chapter 7, Article 1, Burglary. It, it first describes a dwelling. Dwelling means any building, structure, or portion thereof which is designed or intended for occupancy for residential use. A person commits the offense of burglary in the first degree without authority and with the intent to commit a felony or theft within when he or she enters or remains within an occupied, unoccupied, or vacant dwelling house of another or any building, vehicle, railroad, car, watercraft, aircraft, or any other such structure designed for the use as the dwelling of another. Now, very important part of this uh, code, a person who commits the offense of burglary in the first degree shall be guilty of a felony. And then it goes on to sentencing and what, what the punishment is. So that's actually um, an important component right there, that the, the definition of the burglary, very important, because they're going to argue. I'm not arguing. I'm just saying they are going to argue the point that he burglarized that house. And they're going to say, well, they didn't steal anything. Well, they're going to, counter is going to, well, maybe there wasn't anything to steal. Doesn't really take away from the fact that he illegally entered a house. And when you have these residents that have seen this several times and have made calls, that you could see where that argument's going to go and how it's going to continue. So that's something that's going to be hashed out in court, and it's probably something that a lot of you did not know. You didn't understand that? And why would you? I didn't either. I had to look it up. Because uh, everything is different from state to state. Now, that's, that's burglary in the first degree. Burglary in the second degree is without authority and with the intent to commit a felony or theft. He or she enters or remains within an occupied dwelling. Same thing. That is also a felony. So, and they go into the punishment phase of that as well. So, there's your burglary statutes. You're, you're going to hear the defendant's attorneys talk about that, and they're going to try to beat that into a jury's head because it's kind of laying the foundation of, hey, look, this is why we got involved in the first place. We dialed 911, and we eventually confronted the man. So, in continuing and watching some of the videos... When you see Mr. Arbery exit the front door of the residence, directly across the street, there's an individual on a phone. It's believed to be the person on the phone with 911 reporting that this individual has made entry into this home again. And they talk about, hey, it's been happened before and this and that. The 911 calls are pretty uh, detailed. And if you're if you've ever done criminal investigation, some of them are very detailed, some of them are not. These are pretty detailed. They, they talk about previous previous uh, events, but he also says, there he goes. He's running down the road. So Ahmad Arby runs from the front door. Now, it doesn't appear to me to be a jog. It appears he's running. He comes out the front door. It looks like he sees the other individual. Whether he does or not, I don't really know. But he takes off running to uh, down the street. 
The next video that you really get to see is the video that has been repeated over and over and over, beginning with somebody videoing out the front window of a truck as they're driving down the road. And as they come around a bend, you see an individual running, which is later determined to be a Mott Arbery. He's running, and he comes up upon a pickup truck, which is facing away from him, not facing him. So some of the media reports were that they chased him down the road. Well, from the original videos that we were shown, that you were shown, the public was shown, it didn't really show anybody chasing him. But why let the truth get in the way of a good story, right? Because not only did it not show they were chasing him, it shows him coming up on two other people. Now, what happened before that, we don't know for sure. So they probably shouldn't report on that because they didn't really know. So some of it's speculation. But here they come running up to the truck. Now, there's two individuals. One appears to be in the bed of the truck, and one is standing outside the truck. He gets out of the truck, and he is clearly holding a long gun. And we find out later it's a shotgun. As he approaches the truck, some one of them makes a comment. I don't know which one. Say, hey, come here, or something to the effect of, hey, man, come here. We want to talk to you. At which point you see Ahmad Arbery veer way out to the right along the passenger side of the truck. When you're watching shooting reconstructions, every little movement becomes important. He passes, he, he runs along wide along the passenger side of the truck. When he gets to the front of the truck, he turns left. Now, that is absolutely critically important in a case like this, because what's going to be argued is that turn right there. That's going to be brought to the jury's attention. So the individual with the shotgun sees him running around the opposite of the truck, and he turns towards him, and he steps towards him. The gun, from what I can see, is not up at point shoulder. It's not aimed at him. It's not doesn't appear to be in any position of it with an intention to discharge the weapon. When Mr. Arbery gets to the front of the truck, when I say he turns left, he turns hard left at the man with the shotgun, who's later identified as Travis McMichael. Now, even in testimony in grand jury by one of the agents of the GBI, you have him talking about how he turns towards the man with the shotgun. And it's important because now you have your investigator explaining it to you. So it's not even just an opinion. You have the actual investigator who's up there leading it saying, look, when he gets to the front of the truck, he turns and he, I think he even uses the word, he engages Travis McMichael. So when we get to that point, what happens next, we can't really see because they, they kind of disappear into the front of the truck. But we do hear a gunshot. And then you see both of them move to the left towards the driver's side of the pickup truck. Clearly struggling for the weapon. There is a con physical confrontation, what it looks like to be a struggle for possession or control of the weapon. You also see Mr. Arbery with his hands on the weapon. They both of them move off camera to the viewer's left. You hear a second shot. As they come back into view, again, Mr. Arbery is pulling on that weapon and he is punching Mr. McMichael what looks about the, about the head and face. Now, this is where it's going to get interesting. So you have Travis McMichael holding the buttstock and the trigger end of the weapon. You have Ahmad Arbery holding the barrel end of the weapon. This is where this is going to get dicey, and this is where an argument is going to be made. 
So when we get to the front of the truck and Arbery makes the left, the question is going to be, does Ahmad Arbery have the right to defend himself if he perceives a threat? They will argue that point. What their answer will be, I don't know. But you look at it for yourself and you tell me what you think. Now, once he grabs that weapon, the defense is going to argue, does Travis McMichael have the right to defend himself? And that's going to get argued. But before we go there, let's talk for one second about why they're there. And in Georgia has a very unique, in the beginning when I said this case is pretty interesting, and this is one of the reasons why. They have something in Georgia code called arrest by private persons. It's Georgia Code Title 17, Chapter 4, Article 4. So 1744. I will read it. A private person may arrest an offender if the offense is committed in his presence or within his immediate knowledge. If the offense is a felony and the offender is escaping or attempting to escape, a private person may arrest him upon reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion. And this right here, I believe, is going to be one of the crucial parts of this entire case if it goes to court. That right there. Georgia Code, arrest by private persons. Did they have the illegal authority to attempt to stop Ahmad Arbery? Did they believe he was committing a felony of burglary? Well, the foundation, they're going to say, lies in the 911 tapes where they where they called a week before and talked about potentially, uh, or not potentially, about somebody in a house, about a confrontation with a black male. And then later, this particular day, multiple people are making 911 calls. And then you hear you have them saying, hey, come here, we want to talk to you. Next thing you know, we have a physical engagement of these two. And the question then, over whether they each have the right to defend themselves is going to come into play. Now, some of you live in areas where you say, well, Jesus, what's he doing with a shotgun? Well, different states have different rules. I live in the Northeast where we are massively overregulated on everything, where people up here are going, my God, well, he's out in the street with a shotgun, so he must be guilty. Well, not necessarily. There's a right to carry long arms and a right to carry in different states and there are different rules. And how they apply that law to this case will be another argument. So as we're going along through this, start thinking of where we began, the, the sloganeering, and now you start to get into the bits and pieces. Did he commit a burglary? Is it in dispute? Yes, that's a matter in dispute. Was he in the house that he shouldn't have been in? Yes, that's not in dispute. He was in a house that he had no business being in. What is the perception of the residents? Did they think he was committing a burglary? Maybe. They're going to have to justify that. When they get out there, do they have the right to make a citizen's arrest based on the fact that they think it might be a felony? Do they even know what a felony is? Do they know it's a felony, not a felony? Do they know what they're doing? Those are matters that are going to be discussed and argued by the attorneys. They're going to go back and forth, and the jury is going to have a lot of information to digest. Now, this is where the, the finger pointing and the other part of this come into play. There is actually a district attorney who at one point was in charge of this case who wrote down a memo, wrote a memo, basically saying they were justified in attempting to stop him. As it went on, they said they were justified in defending themselves. And that becomes an issue that is going to be argued in court like crazy because it's, it's not often that you have 
investigative and prosecutorial entities arguing back and forth in public. So we now have the three individuals, Travis McMichael, his father, Gregory McMichael, who is in the back of the truck, pickup truck, who is also armed but never fires a shot, and the individual, I believe his name is Roddy Bryan, who is videoing following. They're saying that now at this point of the time of this recording that Roddy Bryan hit him with the truck. They're going to they're gonna talk about how he got hit with the truck, how there's markings on the truck, a dent, and some fiber evidence, and they're going to say that he tried to hit him with the car. So he has been charged too. There's been a dispute, and the legal proceedings originally started out, the original district attorney in the area recusing themselves because there was a conflict of interest as Gregory McMichael used to work, one, for the police department, and two, as an investigator for the district attorney. The case was transferred to the Georgia Attorney General's office, uh, by the, I'm sorry, by the AG's office to the Waycross Judicial Circuit. Another district attorney came into play. Now, one of uh, the district attorney in that particular district, a man by the name of George Barnhill, told him that the killing of Arbery was justifiable homicide. He gave them an initial opinion the day after the shooting. We do not see the grounds for an arrest of any of the three parties. Uh, he went on and wrote a memo that says, McMichaels were within their rights to chase, quote, a burglary suspect with solid firsthand probable cause. That Arbery initiated the fight and that Travis McMichael was allowed to use deadly force to protect himself when Arbery grabbed the shotgun. Here's the, this is going to be a tough thing to get around. This is a district attorney giving that opinion. There hasn't really been any other earth shattering evidence that's come out that we know about that the public's been made aware of. Maybe they do and it could change things. But when you have a district attorney saying that Arbery initiated the fight, that's going to be a tough one to get around as time goes by. Because as I said earlier, when he rounded the corner of that truck, it's kind of hard to say it didn't happen, especially when you have one of the investigating officers, quote, says in his grand jury testimony, quote, he sees Travis McMichael and makes the decision to turn and engage Travis McMichael. He further says he turns, you hear a shot, then you see Mr. McMichael moving backwards with Mr. Arbery. Obviously, they were engaged in a physical confrontation at this point. They go off off screen, and you hear a second shot. They come back into view of the camera. Mr. Arbery is striking Mr. McMichael, and then you see the third shot occur. So there's your investigator pretty much saying there's a fight for the weapon. You have the district attorney, original district attorney, saying, giving you giving a memo saying they were within their rights to do this. It's a tough one to get around in court. It's almost as tough as some of the media hype that goes along with it. They immediately want to start talking about backgrounds of the McMichaels and this, that, and the other thing, which is not easy to do because they are now the defendants. It's, it's kind of, it's going to be hard because Barnhill himself appoints to the Georgia's citizen's arrest law as justifying the killing of Arbery. And when they start talking about backgrounds, they want to only talk about the backgrounds of the McMichaels. They don't want to talk about the background of Arbery. You bring that up and you get a lot of pushback. Barnhill also wrote that Arbery's mental health and prior convictions help explain his apparent aggressive nature and his possible thought pattern to attack an armed man. These are damaging. 
These are, these are going to make a prosecution very difficult. And remember, the burden of proof is on the state to prove beyond a reasonable doubt the crimes that have been levied or the charges that have been levied. Now, the charges that have been levied, one of them is a uh, criminal restraint, meaning, you know, grabbing him, trying to do the rest. So they're challenging the citizen's arrest. I'm not going to sit here and tell you what the outcome of that's going to be, but that's a critical one because that's the first one that has to get looked at as far as I can see, why they tried to stop him in the first place. If they, st if they had, were in solid legal grounds to stop him under Georgia law, that changes the rest of this case because it justifies their position being out there. If that gets overruled and that gets shot down and they say they don't have that, well, that makes the rest of it uh, a little more open to attack. But then they were charged with murder and malice murder. So here's some of the arguments that are going to come out of that. First of all, let me read to you. Georgia Code, Title 16, Chapter 5, Article 1, Homicide. 1651. Under it falls murder, malice murder, felony murder, uh, and murder also in the second degree. So they were charged with malice murder and I believe felony murder. And the felony would be the criminal restraint because they were also charged with that. So a person commits the offense of murder when he unlawfully and with malice afterthought, either express or implied, causes the death of another human being. Express malice is that deliberate intention unlawful to awfully to take the life of another human being, which is manifested by external circumstances capable of proof. Malice shall be implied where no considerable provocation appears and where all the circumstances of the killing show an abandoned and malignant heart. To me, the important line there is considerable provocation. They're saying there was no provocation. Well, the other side's going to argue that Ahmad Arbery turning around that corner and attacking the man with the gun is absolutely provocation. So you can start to see where these things get dicey. The rule of law is a complicated thing, especially in the courtroom. A court of public opinion doesn't count in a courtroom. And you can't really make cases on, on allegations and innuendos. you got to bring it all around. The burden of proof being beyond a reasonable doubt is a monstrous hurdle in any case. It really is. There's no doubt those people were all involved. And the, the matters that are in dispute are legitimate. They're going to be very good arguments to, to, uh, to make. And it's going to be, it's going to be very, very difficult for this prosecution to walk through this if they can get an impartial jury. The whole first part of this episode was talking about the media bias. I did that for a reason. This case is not going to be easy, but the media bias makes it harder. The fact that they brought in all of the other nonsensical issues about his background, his football playing, this and that, the nice picture of him at a prom or whatever, humanizing him, talking about it, they also want to bring up the fact that these are two, uh, I read in one article, white rednecks. The fact that he used a racial expletive after the shooting. Those are all going to be talked about. However, whatever he said after the shooting has no bearing on what happened before the shooting. And that's 
the part that the public needs to, to hear and they need to get through their head because this is the, what is the predicate? What led up to this? What happened in the dynamics of the event? Think about this from the position of, of Ahmad Arbery. Did he think they were going to shoot him? He may have thought it. He may have actually thought the only recourse I have is to get that gun from him. Because if I run away, he's just going to shoot me. The other side is going to argue against that, saying, well, if that was really his intention, why wouldn't he have just shot him as he ran up the road, right towards him? McMichael's attorneys are going to say, what was Travis McMichael supposed to do at that point? He believed he was effectuating a citizen's arrest, which he thought was lawful. He legally had possession of the gun, and this individual tried to take it from him. So in his mind, if Arbery gets control of the weapon, could he get shot? Meaning, could McMichaels get shot? That's the part they're going to argue. And they're legitimate arguments on both sides. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. Uh, I want to just finish this one up by saying, look, I don't want to give you my opinions. I want you to make your own. I think you forming your own opinions based on a little bit more knowledge that was given to you, reading some of the law, talking about the shooting and how he goes about, talking about some of the uh, testimony that was given at grand jury and, and the impact of the media. What I hope comes from this is as you go in, the next time you watch a news story of something that's controversial, ask more questions. Ask yourself, do a little research, look it up. It's a shame that you have to do the research, but the media is not giving it to you. So you have to. Before you jump to conclusions and start burning cities down and losing your minds, ask the questions. If in the very end, the result is what you thought it would be and you want to express your anger then, it's certainly more understandable. But we need to know information before we do things like this and before we have our final opinions. This, this is an interesting case that's going to that's gonna be a tug of war here. I don't know what the outcome's going to be. I don't know all the facts. I just did a little bit of open source research. I didn't reach out to anybody in Georgia to ask any, any uh, kind of backdoor questions. And, and uh, I do know a lot of these people, but I wouldn't do that to them. I just think that um, we all as a society owe it to ourselves to learn a little bit more about these things before we react or overreact. So I hope you, uh, you got a little bit more out of this. If you have any questions or comments, I know this is controversial. Please reach out to us at under the yellow tape podcast at gmail.com. Please leave a comment if you want. Check it out on the website. You can reach us through there too at undertheyellowtape.com. And um, I want to thank uh, some of our sponsors for, for helping us put this together, put this whole podcast together. We have Alliance Safety out of Phoenix, Arizona. It's a great safety company, keeping the American workers safe. And at the time of this COVID-19 pandemic, they've adjusted. They changed gears and they instituted a whole new program in the Phoenix, Arizona area on keeping uh, workers safe as they move into these work sites. Uh, Quarter Mile Photography, Randy Pubikevich, he's an awesome guy. He's a friend of mine. And he is, I, I mean, he's done so much to help under the yellow tape. I couldn't even tell you we don't have enough time to tell you how much he's really helped us. Forensic Training Source out of Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, they basically, their motto says it all, serving those that protect and serve. They are, are teachers of forensic training throughout, throughout the world, actually, and they have uh, stepped up and sponsored us, and we thank them for that. Gensch Mob Creative Consultancy, um, friend of mine since childhood, 
and he has been with me every step of the way of this, kind of tweaking things and helping me where he thinks I need it, and I appreciate every bit of that. So um, we will, I hope you join us for the next one where we're going to break down the in-custody death of George Floyd. There's some very surprising things that happened there as well. A lot of things there that the media just did not tell you, did not share with you. Um, again, we're not here to change your mind. We're here to open your mind. Think about it. Make your own decisions. That's what this country is all about. Being, having the freedom to make your own decision. Exercise that freedom. Do the research and be more educated on, on these topics. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk soon.